Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Solving the Financial Puzzle. I am your host, Dan Caprill. I want to thank you for joining us where every week we discuss matters regarding personal finance, some things that are currently in the news, other things that aren't, some things that have to do more with psychology than they actually do about the numbers. It's interesting right now, you're still thinking about psychology, but we're at a point where the market just continues to go up. Now, that should be a reason to rejoice. You know, for those of you who have money in equities, you should be quite pleased. I mean, after all, in 2007, 2008, you took a huge hit. So it's about time that you get this run-up that allows you to restore your wealth. Over time, things tend to revert back to the mean. So the fact that the market is going up is a normal thing, in my opinion. It's always been the case historically. I used to joke that when people would ask me, where's the market headed? I would always say, well, it's going to go to 25,000. I just don't know when. Well, looks like that's probably going to happen here, uh, either in the end of 2017 or sometime in 2018. It's normal. The year I was born, I think, was trading roughly around 600. So a lot of doublings that happen. It's, it's just what you should normally expect, but it's not linear. Unfortunately, though, when we see these, these run-ups like this, people get antsy. They just feel like it can't go on forever, and it won't. But therefore, they want to try to guess when it might go down. And, and my advice has always been never do that. You should have enough money in equities where you get the benefits of them, but you should have enough money in other things so that if there is a downside to equities, the overall hit to you is minimized. Now, that's just common sense. That's logic. But as humans, we don't want to have to sustain that pain, but it's just the way that it goes. So please understand that that good news is good. <laughs> it really is. The movement in tax reform is going to probably help businesses a lot. So you should anticipate to see equities go up even more. That's just the way that it works. Today, we're going to be covering some of the questions. We always tend to get questions from listeners, which is great. If you ever have a question, you want to submit it. Uh, it's very simple. Just uh, send me an email, Dan at matsonandcapril.com. We'll uh, cover that question most likely in a future podcast. At the very least, I will definitely get back to you. So let's go to this first one here. Beth in Loveland. This is kind of interesting because my wife's name is Beth and she lives in Loveland, but I don't think this is her. I could sell my house right now for 500000 and I only owe about 100000 I'm only 57. Okay, that's not my wife. She's a little younger. Not a lot, but a little bit. But I'm thinking about selling it now, buying a much smaller place, and using the extra cash to retire now. Is that a bad idea? Well, no, that's not a bad idea at all, Beth. Uh, downsizing, lowering your overhead is always a good idea. Now, whether or not that one move is going to give you all the, the resources you need to retire, well, that's, I mean, there's more to it than just that. But assuming that this is going to give you the, an amount that you can you can retire with. Sure, makes total sense. One of my biggest, I don't know what the term would be, the one thing I dislike more than anything in retirement is people who own multiple homes. And I say that because it usually doesn't work out very well. Usually uh, one home becomes a drag. And I've actually seen people run into troubles financially because they have two homes. This isn't everybody. But I've never really saw the, the huge benefits of having two homes. It's certainly a lifestyle thing, but I, I encourage people to maybe renting or 
go to different places or something like that. So if I can get somebody to go from two homes to one home, I get excited. <laughs> but uh, no, you, you by all means, downsizing, it makes sense. If you sell your house for profit, there's an excellent chance that you will not have to pay taxes on the profit. Now you want to talk to your accountant about that. It just depends on largely how long you've had the house as your primary home. But in most cases, you're going to be able to keep that. But just be sure, Beth, that the math is being done because there's a lot more to this than just the fact that your house payments may go away. You're, you're obviously going to need money for other things, and it's very important that that be done. It's very important that your planning be very comprehensive and explores things like inflation, uh, the tax implications to your savings. And really has a good understanding about what your financial needs are going to be. When you retire, it's not a whole lot different from work in that you do get a paycheck. And it's important that you live within that paycheck. So it's a whole different way of looking at it. Understand this too, uh, Beth. Please don't just do your retirement projections using a linear spreadsheet like Excel. Not a good way to do it. You need to factor in volatility into your analysis. If you don't know how to do that, please feel free to reach out to me. We do this for all of our clients. If you're interested in how that would work, how can I uh, determine if I'm going to have enough money when I factor in market volatility? More than happy to talk to you how to do that. 513-563-PLAN is our number, 513-563-7526. Or again, you can shoot me an email, dan at matsonandcapril.com, matson, M-A-T-S-O-N. The word and, A-N-D, and then Capril, C-U-P-R-I-L-L. Okay, Dave in Columbus. Unless my company's entire board of directors gets in trouble for sexual harassment. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of that going around. It's like, who's next? I feel very confident about our future potential and growth. How much company stock is too much to own in my 401k? Great question, Dave. Again, we don't know what the future brings. We don't know what the future is of your company. But I I always recommend that you keep individual holdings to no more than 5% of your net worth. Now, for some people, that's not possible. There are some companies like Procter & Gamble, for example, where they just give you stock. And you really can't diversify it until you retire. Okay. But if you have the ability to diversify that stock, I would. Now, if they're giving you the opportunity to buy that stock at below market prices, I would definitely take advantage of that. But as soon as I could diversify it, I would. Remember, when you have a significant amount of your net worth in one company, what you're saying by your actions is that this is the greatest company in the greatest industry in the world. I mean, that's really what you're doing by your actions. And I don't think any of us truly feels that way. I don't think we, any of us really feels that we've identified the greatest company of all time. It's just that we have a sense of loyalty to where we work. And we think, okay, you know, I think this is going to work out well. Well, you know, that's fine. But just understand what you're not doing is you're not investing. You're speculating when that happens. And sometimes speculation works well. Sometimes it doesn't. There was a time when I tell this story often about an engineer who I met in, I think it was 2001, who when he sat down with me, he said right off the bat, I know you're going to tell me to diversify my company stock. He worked for GE. He said, but I don't want to hear about it. Now, understand where he was coming from. In the last 10 years prior to that, a bad year for GE stock was probably 20% growth. Jack Welch was their chairman. 
and they were just you know kicking butt and taking names uh, you know it was just phenomenal and he did not want me to tell him that he should diversify well obviously that's what i wanted to tell him but since he wouldn't let me we just agreed to part as friends and i think it was about a 15 minute meeting and then off he went and i think about this man a lot because if i'm not mistaken around that time GE was trading around 65 bucks a share, and it got down to $8 in 2008. So you just don't know. So Dave, my advice to you would be keep it to 5%. If you've made good gains off of it by being less than prudently diversified for now, great. Take the profits. But let's not throw logic to the side here because you really don't know. Now, if you are aware of some new technology that your company is about to release, fine. I don't know if you definitely want to go out and buy more stock because I don't know how the insider trader rules work. But if you already own it, you know, fantastic. But understand that what is already known about your company is already factored into the price. It's what we don't know that's going to move stock prices. If you don't know, then you're speculating. Okay. So I hope that helps. Lisa in Dayton. Lisa says, I'd really like to meet with a financial advisor, but my husband says we're fine handling our investments ourselves. Is it okay to do this without help? Absolutely, Lisa, it is. In fact, it might surprise you to learn that about 50% of the people who meet with me and my associate, Nikki Early, 50%, we don't even offer our services to them. Some people are surprised to hear that. And it's because when we meet with somebody, we want to make sure there's a very good reason for them to work with an advisor. If you are somebody who really enjoys handling your own personal finance, if you are somebody who likes control, if you are somebody who has a strong investment philosophy, especially if that investment philosophy believes that you can move money around in anticipation of market jumps, if that's you, yeah, you should be your own financial advisor. Absolutely. If I were to ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, to rate your financial peace of mind. If you scored yourself a nine or a 10, you don't need to work with a financial advisor. In fact, I, I surprise people sometimes when I say, I don't work with nines and tens. Now that's not really true. We have a lot of clients who are nines and tens, but they weren't nines and tens when we met them. They were four or fives and sixes. So I think that's usually the key litmus test question right there is if I was to ask you to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10, how you feel about your personal finances. If you're giving yourself very high marks and you're you're working on your own, well, yeah, I don't I don't see any reason why you should have to hire somebody because it's really about getting peace of mind. It's really about you being able to sleep well at night. Now, I could argue logically you should hire somebody because you frankly may not know what you're doing, but that's for you to decide. I'm never one to tell somebody, you know what, you're doing this all wrong. I'm not. In fact, some people are frustrated when they come see me because I won't do it. If they tell me that they're worried and they're, they have a lot of concerns and it's causing them financial anxiety, oh yeah, absolutely I will show them if they're doing it wrong. But if someone comes to us and says, you know what, I'm feeling really good, I'm solid, I just kind of want a second opinion, I don't give second opinions when someone's feeling good. It's kind of like a doctor. You know, if, if your doctor said to you, you know what, your heart, you know, you're 55, you've got the heart of a 25-year-old. Would you go get a second opinion? I mean, that just does not sound logical, right? Especially if you felt great. Why would you doubt that? But I see it all the time in matters of personal finance. Now, what that tells me is you're probably not a 9 or a 10. You probably don't feel as good. Or, heaven forbid, you're trying to get out of me 
as much free information as I'm willing to give you. Well, I'll give you plenty of free information on this podcast. So if that's what you want, then this is really the place to go. You know, Listen to this podcast regularly and we'll provide you with a lot. But if you are having anxiety about your money, if you're concerned, if you think it's taking up too much of your time, if you're losing sleep, that's when it makes total sense to find somebody that you like, that you can, can trust, and that can help you achieve what you're looking to achieve. So Lisa, you know, if you and your husband are feeling really solid, great. Sometimes with couples, one member of the family is really into the personal finance and the other isn't. You do have to consider the, the possibility of, you know, who's going to die first. And that could be a reason to bring somebody in. When that happens in our office, we're, a little, we're still a little dubious because I'll look at the spouse who is in control and I'll say, do you really want to give up control? I mean, are you going to second guess everything we recommend? Because if you are, maybe this isn't, you know, for you. But if you're willing to say, sure, no, I can do that. Just keep me informed. Well, then, then it can work. It can work well. Look, I'm a big believer that most people will benefit hugely by having professional advice in the matters of the personal finance. If for any other reasons, because we tend to do things emotionally, not logically. And so if you have somebody assisting you, that person is more likely to act in a logical manner. So that's really, I think, where most people benefit. However, you have to make that discovery for yourself. Again, if someone is ill, but you feel great, the doctor has to convince you that you have an issue. It's up to you to make that decision. But if you're feeling great, I'm not going to be the one telling you that you've got a problem. Now You have to figure that one out. You have to decide for yourself if it makes sense to empower somebody else to give you that, to give them some control. And if that's not you, then don't deny who you are. Be honest about yourself and who you are. All right, one more question here. We got Cliff and Anderson. Cliff says, I told myself that once I hit a million dollars in my portfolio, I'd like to move a lot of money to cash. But now that I'm at a million, I'm thinking I can get to 1.2 million before I made that move. What do you think? Okay, so Cliff, this is once again a classic example of how psychology has a far greater influence in matters of personal finance than does, say, logic. Or emotion has far more of an influence here. So what's going on right now, Cliff, is you're obviously your portfolio is going up. You're enjoying that. You're enjoying the, this upward movement. And you don't want to cut it off because you think, hey, I just want to keep making money. Well, that makes sense. But understand, it's emotion that's driving that. Because you have absolutely no idea what next week brings, the week after that, etc. The real question is, how much money, Cliff, do you need to have the retirement you want? A million dollars may be the number. Five million dollars may be the number. Once you've determined that, then the next question is, how do I invest this money so that I don't run out in my lifetime? So it has nothing to do with hitting certain dollar marks before you move to cash, which, by the way, is not, in my opinion, a very good asset class because it pays you like nothing. So understand that if your money's sitting in cash, it's not growing, which means it's shrinking because of inflation. And heaven forbid, if it's in your 401k, taxation. So if, you're, if you've got money sitting in a 401k or an IRA account, you really need to think about those two factors working against you if you get too conservative. So it's not that you hit a magic number that you should you know, now say, okay, I'm going to now go to cash. No, it really should be you saying, all right, I'm going to, I need a certain amount for retirement. And you've already calculated what that is. 
And once you've done that and you hit that mark, then you need to position that asset base so that you get the return you need with the least amount of volatility. Now, if you don't know how to do that, Cliff, feel free to call us. I'll be more than happy to explain to you the process that we do as part of our wealth coaching program. It's a three-step process. We do it in conjunction with you. You help us co-design this strategy because every strategy has pros and cons. Every strategy has things that work well. And there's going to be a downside to it. And you need to understand that. But you need to be part of that process. So we do that in three steps, usually over just three meetings. And each meeting goes for about one hour. So it's not complicated, but it's very deliberate. And you walk out with a very clear-cut strategy about what you do and how you do it. So if you, like Cliff or any of the listeners out there, if you have similar type concerns, okay, I've got this portfolio. I think it's enough, but how do I structure it? so that I get the return I need with the least amount of volatility, well, feel free to reach out to us. Area code 513-563-PLAN is our number, 513-563-7526. Or again, you can email me, dan, at advisorarchitect.com. So I want to thank you all for listening for this week's episode and look forward to talking to you next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Solving the Financial Puzzle. If you want to find out more about Dan Capril or about today's topic, visit matsonandcapril.com. And be sure to join us for the next edition of Solving the Financial Puzzle. Information provided on today's show is provided for information purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with an investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action. Dan Capril is an investment advisor representative of MPM Wealth Advisors and Capril Wealth Coaching, LLC. Both firms are registered investment advisors. To obtain a copy of Form ADV and a private policy statement for either firm, call 800-353-7923.